I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Cons Minds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode nine, we read The Quest for Community by Robert Nisbet from 1953. Robert Nisbet was born in 1913 in Maricopa, California, where his father managed a lumberyard. He began attending the University of California at Berkeley in 1932 and studied sociology under Frederick Taggart. After earning his PhD in 1939, he taught at Berkeley until World War II when he served in the Army in the Pacific Theater. He returned to Berkeley after the war and would become a full professor in 1953. That year, Nisbet left Berkeley to serve as dean at the University of California's New Riverside campus. It was also the year he published the subject of today's discussion, The Quest for Community, A Study in the Ethics of Order and Freedom. He remained in the University of California system until 1972, and then after a year at the University of Arizona, moved to Columbia University in 1974, held classes there until he retired from teaching in 78. Nisbet worked with the American Enterprise Institute in Washington until 1986, and even after retiring, continued to write until his death in 1996 at the age of 82. The Quest for Community was considered Nisbet's greatest work. His insights into the nature of community led Booked rank among the foundational works post-war American conservatism. So last episode, we read Milton Friedman's robust defense of the free market and his classical liberal elevation of the individual. And in that book, he argued that freedom of the individual is the ultimate goal of politics, political life, and government. He calls government nothing more than a collection of individuals. Well, Nisbet in this book explains how Enlightenment individualism has what he says created a widening gulf between the individual and those social relationships that offer meaning. Uh, he says, the modern release of the individual from traditional ties of class, religion, and kinship has made him free, which several of our authors have argued is very good, is a good thing. But Nisbet says, this freedom is accompanied by the sense of disenchantment and alienation. Because as our society has become more individualistic over generations, family, local community, church, and the whole network of informal interpersonal relationships, as Nisbet says, have ceased to play a determining role in our institutional systems of mutual aid, welfare, education, and economic production. We've touched on this subject in prior episodes, but you know, in, in earlier times, not just in early American history, but also in the 20th century, you know, you had co-ops who built and managed hospitals. You had churches who ran birthing centers. You really had the local community handling social welfare needs of, of the community and of the society, including, you know, education, these sorts of things. And these intermediate authorities, that's what Nisbet calls them. Intermediate authorities would be family, local community, church, and what he calls the whole network of interpersonal relationships. These intermediate authorities have become detached from positions of functional relevance, he says, to the larger economic and political decisions of our society. Because government has overtaken the entire social welfare sphere, you know, what we were just talking about. That is all run by government mm -hmm. now, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, free market individualism, Milton Friedman's free market individualism, has 
completely overtaken economic life. And it's really not leaving any room for the smaller allegiances of men, is what Nisbet calls it, to have uh, significance in daily life and in political life. The question of significance is interesting too, because as we've read other authors who talk about the decline of intermediary institutions, Will talked about that a lot in his book. I think Nisbet makes it clear that even when those institutions still exist, like there are still churches, there are still community groups, it, you know, they attendance may be down, but they're they're still out there. But they're not doing anything like the things you mentioned, like you know, local hospitals and credit unions and and self they used to call them self self reliance mm-hmm. agencies. You know, you're often in an immigrant community where they knew nobody else was looking out for them, so they'd get together and form a small bank, you know, form a small insurance company, pool the community's resources, even if they were meager, to help each other out. Now that I mean, if those institutions still exist, but they're not essential anymore, if their role's been usurped by government in the really important ways, then they can't build the community mm-hmm. that they used to do. And you know, they they're still out there. But it's like, it's no, it's no more meaningful than a bridge club. You know, it's, it might be fun. You know, it's like hanging out with your friends. Okay. Maybe they have a block party. Sure. But it, it's not, that's not the sort of thing that gives you a mm-hmm. place in the world, informs you of who you are, where you fit into this group, you know, where you come from, where your traditions are maintained. I thought that was probably the, Nisbet's explanation was probably the best, even in the parts I, I don't fully agree with. I thought he explained it better than anybody else did about the why these intermediary institutions are so important. It, w- it was a big change from Friedman last week too. So that was, that was kind of interesting. Yes, what a contrast. I agree with you. I thought that his thoughts here, you know, he's writing in the 1950s, but there really is so much application to the contemporary society. In fact, in, in many ways more so, you know, he has a line, he says, established social contexts have become weak and there's fewer interpersonal relationships, which formerly gave meaning and stability to existence. It just made me think. So, so I looked up some statistics. According to Cigna, the healthcare provider, Cigna's loneliness index, 46% of Americans feel lonely, sometimes or always. And 63% of the American population says they don't belong to any group of friends. Like People feel friendless. You probably couldn't have been able to say that in the, certainly in the 19th century, but even in the you know earlier 20th century, you'd be around people so much because you'd re- your reliance on others, your reliance on your church community, your reliance on working together and banding together as a, as a community. I mean, you'd be relying on them so much, you probably wouldn't have time to not <laughs> to think step back and say, I don't have any friends because well, I'm, I'm, I'm with people working with them in every aspect of life all the time. We eat together, we work together, we everything we do is kind of a, a group project. In the 50s, I could see where he, he would look at a decline because it, there were some things were still a lot the same as they were before the war and in the previous century. But by now, I think a lot of that decline, I mean, part of it's just physical mobility. You know, a lot of the people I grew right. up with moved away, yeah. you know, and I don't live in the same neighborhood I grew up in, not that far, but you know, it's, it's different. We, we all kind of spread out and mix together and that can alienate you. I don't know. When I think of making friends, most of them I made years ago, mm-hmm. you know, because as middle-aged adults, I don't know, it just takes us longer to make. Yeah. Money. There's that joke that, uh, among, uh, Jesus's lesser known miracles is that he, he built a solid group of friends in his thirties. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, I hadn't heard that one, but that's, that's true. I mean, that, you don't, you don't see that as much. So I think that's part. And then, and then there's also like the sort of things we do for leisure is different because of technology. Whereas now, I mean, a person might entertain himself playing video games by himself. Or even multiplayer games where you're dealing with people you never see and will never see again. But it's not, you know, it's not mm-hmm. a community. But you're, you're you're doing something that that occupies your mind and helps you relax or whatever. Whereas before, I think you had to go out 
and talk to your neighbors. Maybe you had a softball league. Maybe, you know, you you met you went down to the corner bar. You, you know, just something mm-hmm. local. You know, maybe church groups, Bible studies, all, all the you know. But the the physical proximity, I think, has really changed since Nisbet's day. So I, I wonder that he might think things have gotten so much worse now because I, I think there's there's kind of distant friendships and distant associations are even less effective at building community. Yeah. I mean, neither of them are meaningful in the same way that the old locally based, you know, informal welfare system was that he talks about. But it's nowadays, you know, you don't have, I mean, I work at home, you know, I don't need to leave the house very much at all. If if I didn't have kids, I might not leave all day. I've said this before, but I moved 2000 miles away from where I grew up. And Nisbet really points to this brand of enlightenment, individual, individualistic uh, behavior, you know, competition, individuation, he says, dislocation of status and custom. I mean, picking up and moving and, you know, unlike maybe some Eastern societies, you know, we don't live multi-generation in the same household anymore either. You know, mm-hmm. um, my parents don't live with us. We don't even live anywhere near them. You know, there's, that creates some disconnection. And uh, to a point that you made in, in a prior episode, technology air conditioning has changed a lot. I mean, uh, my wife and I were watching a movie the other night with, you know, it was portraying New York and I think in the fifties and, you know, everybody's outside and everybody's talking. And I said to her, I thought of your comment and said, you know, I doubt it's anything like that anymore because people are indoors because they have air conditioning and heat and video games and their phones. And there's no, there used to be a need to sit outside so that you could have some social contact. Not that I, you know, necessarily opine for the days when we, I had to constantly be with my neighbors, but there is something lost there that I think, you know, Nisbet's touching on. Yeah. I mean, I'll never give up air conditioning, not in, not in this region in the summertime. You know, it's, it's a good invention, but it does have that side effect. It's like that book, just the death and life of American cities. Mm-hmm. And this was in the, around the same era as Nisbet, maybe a little later when they were starting to scientifically build cities, you know, slum clearances, highways, and in the sort of way that you see some housing projects in the East are still built where it's isolated, you know, and there's no, there's no foot traffic. Mm-hmm. There's no people passing by that led to a lot of crime because no one's looking mm-hmm. out. Yeah. I, I would bet that even, even though the community is an enclave in that <laughs> arrangement, that it didn't really lead to community in the same way. And also, I mean, if we're talking about public housing, I, I'm sure Nisbet would say that the community couldn't be created by that because everything was being delivered by Washington mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that your local folks weren't responsible for anything. There was no community leader, or if there was, it was just a person passing out the benefits that are coming down to you from the national capital. Mm-hmm. I think time and changes have played some role in exacerbating what he's talking about, but there is, there is still that the change in how we view government, even with technology, if we, if we didn't, hadn't centralized so much and brought so much out of the community and into the federal capital. I wonder if a lot of those changes wouldn't have taken place. Let's jump into where he squarely puts the blame because Weaver, I think, identified a number of these same pathologies and and worried about them. And he blamed the loss of higher morals, higher meaning, and loss of the divine, loss of Mm -hmm. metaphysical trust. Nisbet goes in a a little bit different direction as we've been talking about. He blames enlightenment individualism, really. And basically, you know, the virtues of individualism and the free market that Milton Friedman touts, he, he doesn't deny any of those good characteristics and those values, but are the, the value added to society. But what he does say is that there's a loss. So he says, scientific universality 
and emancipation from the past and from religion has also led to man's moral estrangement and spiritual isolation. You know, uh, what was hailed by the rationalist as throwing off constraints has created competition, individuation, dislocation of status and custom, impersonality, moral anonymity, the eradication of old restraints or parochialisms, something that, you know, John Locke was all for. Let's throw off the chains of tradition. Let's throw off the chains of parochial uh, control. But in the process, you also undermine the world. He says, a world founded on kinship, village, and, and the church, as we've been discussing. So he goes in a little bit different direction than Weaver. I mean, Weaver kind of blames philosophy a little bit. You know, he, he blames the right. lost religion. He blames the f- failure of collective philosophy, where Nisbet is going to go in this different direction and say individualism and the free market and the freeing of constraints brought on upon by the light, Enlightenment. That had tremendous value to our society, but it also has some serious costs that we actually need to reckon with. Yeah, and that's he kind of even goes farther than Will and Bork, who I, I think also had this theme of, Freedom, yes, but freedom to do what? Mm-hmm. I think Nisbet even goes a little farther and say freedom, y- yeah, but what at what cost? Mm-hmm. So he's not even as fully sold on the Enlightenment individualistic freedom as Bork was, and and I think up till now Bork had been the probably the least Lockean author we had read. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. I mean, even Bork had said that the some of the flaws of American society were baked into the founding and what the founding was based on. I thought that was pretty surprising from somebody who had wanted to sit on the Supreme Court at one point. Right. But Nisbet, I think, I think would agree with him and say, you know, this being our nation being founded on enlightenment principles, as much as they may have been needed at the time they came about, they destroyed more than they created. And that's, um, I don't know. It's, it's maybe just because we are brought up in that American tradition. I, I, I kind of recoil at the idea that there's something inherently destructive about individual liberties. Mm-hmm. A lot of these readings have made me think maybe maybe there's as essential as they are. There, sometimes we we need to pump the brakes a little bit. I don't know. What do you think? I, I agree. You, you've already hit on maybe some of the other reasons. You know, pointing to technology, change in the patterns and behavior in terms of like where people move to follow jobs. But I guess Nisbet, Nisbet would say these are all outgrowths of the free market in that you have to pick up and move to where the work exists. But then again, I mean that was certainly true in prior times. You know, you wouldn't mm-hmm. have somebody moving to the wilderness in Ohio from Massachusetts, except for to find a, you know, maybe a better life or whatever. Yeah, we've always migrated as much a part in the American tradition as anything. And people have always moved. I mean, there's always been people wandering in ancient times, whole societies. Mm-hmm, right. Not being, we didn't all <clears throat> descend from people who had been in the same place for 10,000 years. We, we moved around. I think he's looking kind of at the European tradition of a settled society. And Europe is settled in that way. America really isn't in that, you know, those, there are those villages in the countryside that are not as changeable as ours. I mean, even in, even in old parts of America, like New England or, you know, the coastal South, there's, there's more movement. I mean, we're just, just the way we are. Mm-hmm. We, you know, young people maybe go, go to the big cities to go to college and some of them never come back and, those people from the cities move, you know, out to the country because they want that kind of life. And we have a, I know it's been a topic lately, but it's how people self-sort. You mm-hmm. know, if a conservative's going to move, we'll move to Texas. And if a liberal's going to move, we move to California. Mm-hmm. And kind of just are segregating ourselves, not even just by politics, but by worldview. Like, what kind of place do you want to live in? Mm-hmm. 
Yes, the social sorting is definitely happening, but it's also true at the same time that America is less mobile than it's been in decades. And I just find mm, the, yeah. the combination of those two factors just really fascinating because, you know, I live in, in an area that Charles Murray would call a super zip, you know, zip code where we have in Fairfax County a very high income levels, but actually more people than in many decades actually aren't moving. They're, they actually are sticking around and it's in the smaller towns. I think we have something in that parallels, you know, what you've just described, the European village or whatever. Maybe it's not a village, but there's a lot of folks in rural areas in this country that don't move or maybe they don't move because they can't move or they don't feel like they have the, the resources to to pick up and take that take that chance but but it is it, i think it is the case that statistics are showing that people are kind of sticking around notwithstanding you and i people are kind of more often than not now are sticking around their local neighborhoods or where they grew up much closer but somehow the social fabric is still kind of pulled apart and i've mm. said this before I, I feel like there was a even a stronger social fabric even when i was a kid in the 80s and, and early 90s i mean than there is now. So that's tough. You're both in a in a rural kind of removed place while at the same time the social fabric is pulled. So, you know, you're not you're not and there's just really no social mobility in those areas either. You really do need to pick up and move to the cities and the self-sorting is happening not just from politics as you indicated, but also technology economy where at the dawn of the internet age, you know, we there's more than one prognosticator who told us that this would open the door for people to live in the most rural backwoods area and still, you know, make $150,000 a year because of the internet access to people and working remotely and so forth. And remote working does happen, but it's not anywhere near what we thought. And now we have Amazon that just declared, you know, after a, a two-year-long beauty contest. Gee, you know, well, where did they decide mm -hmm. to come? New York City and Northern Virginia, Arlington, where it's already overly subscribed. Businesses yeah. start to cluster. Opportunities start to cluster. And it, it creates even more difficulty for those who are not willing or able to pick up and move. I, I keep hoping for that to be true about teleworking and remote working and because it would it would revitalize America's small cities and small towns more than anything because I mean since the car and cheap airfare has drawn people out of those places and you know the diminishing of the need for farm labor is has kind of emptied out along the countryside I don't know it hasn't happened yet but I keep hoping that you know somebody will be able to have that high-powered New York job but live in upstate New York in an old you know Victorian home that had fallen on hard times and you know, that sort of dream, you know, where you can, mm -hmm. Oh, look at, you know, because anytime city people get out to the country, they're like, Oh, look at this property is cheap out here. Yeah. Wow. Look what we could get. Oh, my apartment costs more than this, you know? And yeah. then, uh, where are you going to work though? Right. Exactly. But I think you're, you mentioned social mobility and, and I think that's something that I found lacking in this bit is I don't think he's really into social mobility. There's a lot of talk about status and a lot of talk about knowing where you belong and you know, and tradition and that sort of thing. But and I think that's that's what people don't like about those traditional societies that you're expected to know your place. Right. Yeah. And sometimes people don't like their place, and I think that that's why a lot of that stuff doesn't fit in America, or at least it hasn't. I there is something comforting about a traditional society where things have been working along certain lines for centuries and. Everybody kind of knows each other. People depend on each other. All the things that are, are great about Nisbet's vision. But it's also, if, if you're a person in that society and you are of relatively low status because of your job or your family or whatever, why would you why would you want to stay there? I think he mentions that when he talks about like Christians kind, trying to convert 
lower caste Indians and it not working. Mm, yeah. You know, because missionaries would go in there and say, look, in your system, you're treated like garbage. Come over to our system. Everybody's equal. It's great. And they're like, no, we're going to stick. It's okay. <laughs> and, that, and that's baffling to, to individualist Westerners. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, that same dynamic can play in the, in the smaller scale can play a part here. Somebody saying, yeah, this, this tradition is great, but in this tradition, I'm never going to get anywhere. I have a vision. I, I think I'm capable of way more than the people around here think I am. So I'm going to go off to New York and, you know, strike out for my fortune. I'm going to go out to San Francisco and do that. You know, it's, I think that, that part of maybe that's individualism, but I think it's individualism because people are, even if they exist within a community, they are individuals, and sometimes they're not happy about where that community puts them. This is sort of the dilemma of conservatism that we're really starting to pick up on, I think, after after multiple books and probably continue to see. But on the one hand, we kind of prize the the social progress. On the one, you know, we we prize the fact that we can have more social mobility, that we we can break the chains of oppressive hierarchy, let's say, or we can strike out on our own. And yeah, the individualist. Uh, ethos that we have in America gives us all the freedom to stand up and say, well, I'm going to try to do something different. I'm going to try to get ahead. So on the one hand, we we value all of that and prize it. But then on the other hand, you know, we want to continue to, he says, he even says this, continue to venerate tradition, social status, the hierarchies of kinship, religion and community and clear moral context. This gets back to this conversation we had with Burke too. There's a, there are traditions that have that have value and we should carry forward. But how do, how do you maintain and how do you how do you preserve the good of those traditions and the value that it brings to daily lives while at the same time, you know, moving beyond the caste system, you know, a class, mm-hmm. hard class society or, you know, moving beyond Jim Crow. I mean, there's there's a middle ground and it's a muddy middle and very, very difficult to pinpoint. I can't help but feel on the one hand, we don't we don't need French Revolution style overturning of society and flattening and leveling. But we do need some progress and we've enjoyed some and we do need to move in a positive direction. But at the same time, we also want to we also want to maintain tradition. We also want to maintain uh, the religious communities and or some community, some forms of associations, these intermediate authorities, as as Nisbet labels them. How do we keep the tradition? How do we keep these relationships, these associations, you know, at the same time also, you know, marching forward with progress? I mean, I think it's a much harder problem than, than it even sounds. Yeah, and I think where he talks about the family is kind of like how Burke talked about the king, this object of veneration, tradition, and that's great when the king's good, you know, and it's 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 great when the patriarch of the family is good, but sometimes they're not. I mean, what if the king could be a tyrant? You know, the the grandfather could be a wife beating drunk, right? (laughs) You know, I mean, that's that does happen, and it's it's not typical, but it does happen. I mean, there are bad folks and. Sometimes they end up in charge as much as even somebody who likes tradition and likes his community and, and his family might say, yeah, but I don't want to listen to that guy all day because he's, he's wrong and he's cruel. And he, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's not, he doesn't have the interest of the family in mind. So, but then once you say, well, how do we change it? Then you're already tampering with that tradition in a way that probably can't be undone. Say, so, oh yeah, we, we, we should venerate the elderly, but not that guy. He's a jerk. Yeah, you know, yeah. and then all of a sudden, it, well, now we're having a more of a democracy, and that's probably not something that fits into traditional family culture. 
And as we've discussed before, people will replace, they, they want to belong. And so they will replace the loss with something else. They, they need meaning in their lives. They need belonging in groups and they, and they will re- replace it with something else. And he, t- he talks about nostalgia, which to me was just a, <laughs> a huge light bulb because obviously make America great is the mantra of, of the nostalgia folks these days. But he says, nostalgia for the greater community and moral certainty of generations preceding. He, he quotes this guy, Robert Burley. I don't even know who he is, but he says, widespread feeling among men that they have lost all control of their destinies. Hitler's answer to that frustration was one of the many secrets of his power. Now, I don't, I don't want to go uh, down the Hitler road, but people do feel like they've lost control. And if you're in one of these rural communities and there's just no jobs and there's a brain drain where best and brightest actually leave the community because maybe they're more daring or maybe they have the resources and uh, so many folks are kind of left in the wake without jobs. And then I guess maybe could be the cause of, you know, the opioid addictions and so forth. The the answer of the populist right or the kind of the socialist right is to answer that frustration by saying we need to go back or what we need to do is we've lost so much. We need, we need to go back. We need to fix it. And there's always somebody to blame or some party to blame. And, you know, Trump has his um, that he points to. But, you know, it's, we, we can't ever go back. But there's this feeling that what was lost or what we had or what we could have is just so far out of reach that there's almost a lashing out. I noted that that line about the la- loss, loss of control over their destinies, too. And it made me think the same thing. It's the alien that that is the alienation he's talking about and the idea that we're just sort of drifting along here and things are getting worse but i, I don't know why and i can't do anything about it that w- that would really make you want to turn to some other solution nostalgia is interesting because in his day nostalgia was a right-wing phenomenon but i think today you look you listen to well i mean you talk about democratic socialists they're rehashing a theory from the 1840s but then even when you get more specific they're talking about how great it was you know, in, in the fifties when there was more unionization and higher mm-hmm. income taxes mm-hmm. and all, I mean, they, there was also a lot of stuff progressives don't like in the fifties, but they, they look at this economic system that was going on there back when we were the only nation that wasn't destroyed by war and we could charge whatever we wanted for everything. They said, we can do that again now. Well, I don't, I don't know that that's possible, but they want to, it's weird how the left has become so backward looking also. I mean, mm-hmm. in, the, in this, in their social ideas, they're, forward-looking and alienating but in their economic program is really no different than anything that the populists of the 1890s were coming up with so you get it's it's weird you get the nostalgia on both sides and both sides are drawing from that sense of everything spiraling out of control i can't help it what can i do so i mean i guess some of them are gonna become proud boys some of them are gonna become antifas you know and yeah it's weird how the the two sides are even more than ever similar. I mean, mm-hmm. in part because of that that idea of nostalgia, and it's also pointing to the same same problems, the same pathologies in society. Like basically, every one of our authors are are doing, which I just find fascinating. And we've we've discussed this before about you know even the Marxist um, view recognize kind of the same problems, but they place the blame elsewhere. And Nisbet has an answer to the. Well, maybe not an answer, but he has he has thoughts on the question of you know material dissatisfaction because the nostalgia of the left that you're just describing is really sort of a, a materialistic nostalgia, like they shared the wealth. And Nisbet, of course, is talking about not talking about wealth; he's talking about spiritual need, you know, social needs. 
and he said he has this some interesting thoughts here he says with the satisfaction of the prime material needs those of a social and spiritual nature become ever more pressing and ever more decisive in the total scheme of things so what he'll say in return is you guys are you guys are harping on the wrong problem instead of worrying about do we have more 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 material materially you know as long as the prime material needs are met you know most people can be content at that point people start focusing more on their social and spiritual needs is that is that not completely prescient for current day i mean where yes we have people in poverty but poverty does not mean that they're emaciated and and starving you know really what it means is they don't have a standard of living that we expect that they should have and that standard of living is actually historically is pretty high i mean obviously our poor poorest in america are living a standard of living that kings in the 17th century could only, couldn't even dream of you know the quality yeah. of life but but once you kind of reach that plateaued level of of comfort where you have heat you have food you know you have clothes you're not you're not wanting for a lot of material things then the focus shifts and you start looking for meaning and you start looking for you know more value in your social relationships and and so forth and i i just think that's so true because they didn't really have an epidemic of anxiety and depression in the 18th century you know maybe they did and it wasn't diagnosed but i think a lot of these these new trends are outgrowths of our contemporary society where people's physical needs are basically met at least in america instead people are going to they're going to refocus their attention on on these other needs and and as they fixate on them and recognize the absence of what it is they they hope or they want in their life then it creates new problems and mostly you know sociological and psychological yeah and those are a lot harder to solve and i think what you've said is what we're also seeing when when people who are still thinking about it the old way about well you should you should vote for whoever's going to make you financially better off and then they can't wrap their heads around somebody who's not rich voting for our billionaire president and they why would you vote for him he's not going to do anything for you and financially they're right but they're only looking through it through that one financial lens as we discussed in the first episode uh, conservatives see issues as more than economic Mm -hmm. and i think that's what people would say in the same way that a lot of rich guys will vote for the candidate who says they're going to raise taxes and and level society, which seems not to be in their interest either. We don't have as many books about that. But, you know, that the what's the matter with Kansas crowd is looking at it through, I think, what, as you're saying, this sort of old way of looking at life and needs and the hierarchy of needs. And when those basics are satisfied, yeah, where, well, all right, what now? Maybe something that, you know, this anomie, this alienation now that i have the moment to think about it and my belly's full there's there's other problems here that we weren't noticing when when the most pressing issue was getting a roof over my head yeah you wouldn't have had time to look at social media look at facebook and see your friends as a teenager at, you know out at parties that you didn't get invited to and then feel anxious and and um, upset over that situation you know a hundred years ago mm. because you were too busy like washing your own clothes by hand. Right. You know, you're too busy, like tending to the, the farm or whatever. So even if they had, you know, phones back then, it's a, uh, an entirely different problem when all of those basic needs are met. And, you know, as he says, rising standards of living together with increases in leisure. I mean, that's what we do, right? I mean, we work so that we can have leisure. We, we work all week for the weekend so that we can do whatever our leisure activity is that we want to do. 
and that that could be going skiing or that could be playing video games or whatever but the the rising standard of living he says actually intensify the alienation and frustration because there's just a lack of fulfillment fulfillment does doesn't occur in the hierarchy of needs until the basic needs are met and then once the basic needs are net, met now all of a sudden we're facing this whole new problem of okay well now we got to be we got to find fulfillment and it almost raises the question to me like in the evolution of of humanity if somehow that lack of fulfillment was satisfied you know okay then what are we missing <laughs> you know right. there's there's always a when it comes to human beings there's there's always more that's needed and i, th- I think this this whole book service is kind of a reply to any idea, any idea of simple answers. Um, anybody who says, all we need to do to fix society is A, B, C. And then you do those things and oh, there's still, there's still a lot of holes here. Um, yeah. New problem. Yeah. There's always something. And that's people who politicians always want simple answers to. Well, sometimes they do. Sometimes they want it to be so complicated that nobody can handle it except the government. So give us more mm-hmm. power, mm-hmm. but uh, simple answers are attractive. You know, all you need to do is start going to church again and everything's going to be great. Well, that might help with some things. I think it does, but it, it doesn't. That yeah, it, There's always a new problem that's going to evolve. There's all, you know, just like if you get a good job and all of a sudden you have a lot of money now and you're feeling good. Oh, okay. Well, I couldn't possibly be unhappy now. Look at my paycheck. And then, you know, you move into the new neighborhood and there's new problems. And there's So mm-hmm. I think it's, this is a good reminder that we think we're going to fix everything and there's the world is a lot more complicated. Human beings are a lot more complicated and, and weird than I think we realized when we were all subsistence laborers a few hundred years ago. It shows the different aspects of human nature because we do have materialist needs. I think the Marxists are right about that. You know, we do need have spiritual and, you know, metaphysical meaning needs as Weaver touches on. And we do have social needs as Nisbet touches on. We have all these things. What I'm starting to re- kind of see coming through these texts is, you know, everyone kind of recognizes the problems, but everyone has a different focus for their blame. And then a different solution for kind of how to deal with it. And you're kind of like, yeah, that could work for that, that sliver, that aspect. Mm. What about this other aspect? You know, so, you know, suddenly it's, it becomes much more complicated. I guess it's good. At least we agree on, on the problem because that's yeah. being felt across the political spectrum. I think the, the detachment, the, the alienation, but uh, that's only, yeah, that's only one step. And we're, we're still going to butt heads for a long time about what the answer is. Well, so let's get to some of his answers, his remedies. Mm-hmm. He, he, he focuses on what he calls intermediate relationships, intermediate authorities. He says, only through intermediate relationships and authorities has any state ever achieved the balance between organization and personal freedom. These intermediate authorities are religious, economic, professional, local, recreational, academic, organizations and authorities of human purposes and allegiances. And he says the role of government is to reinforce these intermediate associations and ensure that they're they're healthy and more than that that there's healthy comp- competition between the groups as he he quotes Montesquieu as saying the only safeguard against power is rival power so he sees centralization as one of the core problems and then decentralization and devolving more power in society to these intermediate authorities that that's a a remedy to try to re-engender this spirit of association yeah, he seems to be sort of approaching the 
like what Louis Brandeis called the curse of bigness. And uh, I mean, he says big business, big government have developed together in Western society and each is dependent on the other. And to these two has been added more recently, a third force in society, big labor. Mm -hmm. So this was a 50s, this was the height of private unionization. So he's definitely seeing more of an impact of big labor in those days. But yeah, all of them are pulling out of the community and bringing power to that central locate that corporate headquarters, that union headquarters, that government capital. So it's, um, it's interesting. It, and it, it's interesting to see this from the conservative point of view too, because it is sort of an attack on, on markets in a way. And we spent a lot of time after this book into the eighties and nineties being focused on efficiency, synergies, economies of scale. And all of that does have its benefits, but it's, it's interesting to see conservatives now being suspicious of bigness in, in a way mm -hmm. we didn't used to be. And well, I mean, depending on what part of the left you're talking about, some of them are suspicious of it too. I mean, the real Marxists, the Soviet Union always had the one big factory, the one big government, the one big union didn't work out too well. But I mean, you, you see more, less radical leftists are kind of more along this side of closer to what we're getting at. And I wonder how that's going to go because we haven't uh, we haven't had that conversation in America in a long time about how big is too big. I mean, we had too big to fail about ten years ago, but we didn't make them any smaller. You know, we just propped them up with even bigger government. Mm -hmm. Nisbet's answer is a lot of it's about smallness and about getting back to those little discrete organizations and communities that. They, they weren't trying to be the, the biggest hospital. They wanted to be the small hospital that serves this town and the surrounding countryside. I think that there's a lot that even outside of the philosophy of it, there's a lot that feels right about that just in our basic human nature. We like smallness. I agree. And I think that decentralization is a really good answer. Mm -hmm. I, I was really delighted to read that because it makes a lot of sense. And it really, I think it, where he, the story that he carries us through, this is a, this is a real logical answer. I mean, I compare that to, you know, Weaver who again, went through the, the litany of, of horribles in society and then gets to the end and says, what we need is private property is what's going to save us. And I'm like, well, I like private property, but <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure that that's going to save us from anything. Decentralization though, it makes a lot of sense. And to your point, that's not just, it doesn't have to just be a conservative thing because devolution to states or decentralization to local associations. I mean, there's could potentially be big advantages to the liberals in America too. I mean, let's take a look at the California privacy law, for example. I mean, that's happening at the state mm -hmm. level and, you know, gay marriage at the state level or, you know, medical marijuana and so forth. I think it has conservative connotations over the years because of maybe some of the issues that have been front burner at the state and local level, but, but it doesn't have to be. And I think, this decentralization makes a lot of sense because something that conservatives argue forever about federalism is we don't need so much power concentrated at the federal level. Like let's bring it down to the states and let states make some decisions and have some laboratories of, of democracy and states and localities don't have a lot of ability to try to solve some of these problems because they just say, Hey, look, you're getting taxed at the federal level. We don't have the money to do this. You know, you're going to vote us out if we ask for more money because you're already paying so many federal, so much in federal tax. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, look to them, you know, because we're not really going to be able to do a whole lot. And what I say is bring it closer to the people at the state and local level. 
yeah, some states will tax you to death and others won't. And let's just see how things develop. And could we reinvigorate some of these associations? You know, as, as you point out in prior podcasts, the, you know, George W. Bush faith-based initiatives. Well, you can criticize them and say, well, that's just a, a way to subsidize churches or, you know, give them a, a leg up. But he was really getting at something that I think Nisbet would appreciate, which is trying to strengthen and revitalize these associations and difficult, basically impossible when you have this big impersonal Leviathan thousands of miles away that make all these decisions that, that affect your life where, you know, your ability to deal with your neighbors and, you know, we don't need to build a hospital, but maybe there's other ways that, that we can work together and make decisions together. And so I really loved decentralization and I'm going to put it on my list of remedies that make a lot of sense. I agree. And I, I, I thought again about those faith-based initiatives too, because it, and maybe whoever was John DiUlio, who was Bush's man on that topic, and maybe, maybe he was familiar with Nisbet's line of thinking. And maybe that's why he realized it wasn't enough that these organizations exist. We had to give them meaning in the community. And maybe that's what, it seems like that's what that initiative tried to do. So yeah, it's, you've got, got this church going, this community group, and you've got members, and that's cool. But here we can make you really have an impact in your community. And maybe the government have a little less impact, at least mm-hmm. the distant government of, of Washington. So that's, yeah, I, I thought of that again, too. And the decentralization seems to be, I mean, we're in nine episodes now, maybe the only theme that runs through every one of these books. So maybe that, mm-hmm. if you're talking yeah. about what is it to be a conservative in America, that has to be on the list. Burke's yeah, little platoons to, to Nisbet's intermediary institutions, Will talked about the same thing. That's one thing we keep coming back to. And, and Friedman, too, talked about dispersing power, dispersing economic power through the free market, but also talked about lessening the centralized power of the government. So I think in our quest to figure out what it means to be conservative, that that theme has to be at the top of the list. Yeah, I love it. Good stuff. Any final thoughts on Nisbet? Nisbet was um, an interesting read, and in a, in a, he took conservatism in a, in a direction that I think we don't see much then or now. The idea is what he called he called for a new laissez-faire, which when you first hear it sounds very Friedman-like, but his laissez-faire was the idea that a laissez-faire that treats the basic unit of civilization as the group, the community, not the individual. And in that, I think he's given us um, plenty to think about because conservatives, as much as we value community, local community especially, are we ready to say that it's more important than the individual? And I, I don't know if the, I don't know if that the spirit of American conservatism can exist without the individual the individual liberties and the individual rights being central to the way the way we think about how we live and how government works. What he's presenting us with is is challenging, but I think it's important to, to see the limits of those indivi- the limits of individualism and the problems that they that it produces. So glad glad to have read this yep. and I would I would recommend it to our listeners if you if you have more thoughts along those lines and about the the nature of community and what makes communities work. Nisbet is foundational work on the subject. Yes, absolutely. I really appreciated Nisbet bringing these issues to the forefront. And I kind of view this as a, a response to 
the Marxist collectivist left as well as saying, it's not just physical needs. It's not just material needs. We have these other needs. And he has this thesis statement, probably should have read earlier, but the quest for community will not be denied for it springs from some of the powerful needs of human nature, needs for a clear sense of cultural purpose, membership, status, and continuity. Without these, no amount of mere material welfare will serve to arrest the developing sense of alienation in our society. You know, Marx points to alienation. So does Nisbet. But he's going to say that material welfare, while a factor, we just need a baseline material subsistence. And after that, we're really talking about a quest for community that humans have, a need to be together and build a culture. That really speaks to me too. And I think that's also a rebuttal to radical libertarianism who would say we don't need borders you know let's just have a, a completely free and open market let people come and go as they please nisbet rebuts that argument as well saying no we we have to have a togetherness we have to have group and social cohesion it can't just be hundreds of millions billions of individuals who like the, the atomization that just bumping into each other and and striving alone individually because that's not going to serve the needs of human beings there's a cost because there there will be a lashing out you know there there will be a need to find belonging so anyway i really loved it and i agree with you that recommend it to our listeners i loved how it was kind of different than what we'd read before more of a sociological perspective so next episode we'll read irving crystal neoconservatism selected essays between 1949 and 1995 so hopefully you'll join us then Thanks.